Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Longshot Podcast. I'm your host, Duncan Robinson, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Davis Patrick Reed. Davis, how are we doing? I'm going to be honest with you, Duncan. I'm okay. I'm okay. I uh, I overslept a little bit this morning. I stayed up late last night watching the Warriors-Hawks, which was worth it. I think I've been vocal about how East Coast it's awful for sports watching purposes because you have to stay up late to watch West Coast games. So I was up a little past my bedtime, overslept a little bit this morning to a barking puppy. And I just, I was a little groggy. It was my own fault. And as I was walking down the stairs, the stairs in our house is carpet in the middle, wood on the outside. I was wearing some socks. You oh can dear. Maybe see where, you can maybe see where this is going. I slipped and fell down the stairs landed on my tailbone, hit my elbow. I'm a little banged up. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm a little banged up, but you know what? I'm going to be okay. I'm going to battle through. I've had a flu game on this podcast because of a sickness. This is now my flu game because I've got a banged up elbow and a tailbone, but I'm here. We're pushing through. I don't know if it's called a a flu game as much as it would be just kind of pushing through some minor injuries. Uh, (laughs) It's good to hear that you're doing all right. It doesn't look like that wing uh, is bothering you too much. Yeah. Get some motion in that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it, it, it's basically Steph Curry's fault, right. And that he's so entertaining that you just felt the need, uh, to stay up and watch him try to get 50. Correct. If you're going to get a 50 piece, I'm not going to sleep. Uh, Stephen Curry is maybe the most entertaining basketball player I've ever seen. Uh, and it was, it was well worth it. Here's the thing. It was worth it. I got to watch his 50. I can take a banged up wing for 50. And here's the other thing I learned. I was reminded, I should say it's a life lesson. You can't let one mistake turn into two dunk. I overslept. That's on me, but I got to wake up the next morning and power through. I can't let it drag into my walk down the stairs. Now all of a sudden I'm banged up. I'm dealing with two mistakes. You know, so I think it's important to, to reflect in these moments and take away lessons and get better. Yeah, I think it's a great uh, metaphor analogy that also really applies to basketball as well. You know, we've talked a little bit about developing a basketball IQ on this podcast. Um, and, you know, I, I think not letting one mistake turn into one on the basketball court is also uh, incredibly important and relevant. Uh, just, you know, for all you long shotters out there who are also not only trying to become better people, but also better players, uh, we are here to lend a helping hand in that regard. Um, we got a live show coming up, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Hey. We have a date on that. It's December 7th, 7 30 PM, I believe. Uh, and it's local for all you, uh, South Floridians. It's going to be in Fort Lauderdale, which is pretty exciting. Come on now. We're coming live and direct with our podcast brothers, Old Man of the Three, JJ Reddick and Tommy Alter. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. December 7th, Broward Center. By the time you guys hear this, tickets are on sale at BrowardCenter.org. So if you're interested in attending, please go check those out. I'm excited, Dunk. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Once again, just to reiterate, so you don't have to go back. It's at the Broward Center in Fort Lauderdale, uh, 7.30 on December 7th. The two of us are going to be there. JJ and Tommy mm-hmm. are going to be there. Old man and the three uh, and some very, very special guests, uh, wow. which have not been named yet and might not ever be named up until yeah. uh, they are announced when they come out on stage. So surprise guests, but we promise uh, it'll be worth well worth the price of admission. 
All right, Dunk, let's get to your favorite part of every podcast, the weekly five in five. Five takeaways from the week in somewhere around five minutes is the goal. I'm gonna take the first takeaway here, and that is if you are a basketball fan, you need to star, circle, underline, highlight, block off November 29th when the Miami Heat will face off once again against the Denver Nuggets. Coming off a little bit of a, an on-court on altercation, maybe we can call it, uh, between Jokic and Markeith Morris. Dunk, you were not on the court at the time of this. You were on the bench, which is probably for the best because knowing you, you would have been throwing elbows, throwing punches, creating a malice in the palace 2.0. What did you see from the bench and what's your reaction when the you know the assistant coaches are running over, creating the wall, making sure you don't run out there? Yeah, I mean, a really common comparison that I've got throughout my career is run our test. Um, right. Yeah. So in all likelihood, if I was on the floor, that something would have ensued. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, my, my big takeaway is that in general, it was just a, a really unfortunate outcome. Um, I think obviously Markeith getting the the shortest end of that, that stick and that he was the one who actually ended up, ended up being injured. I mean, from where I was sitting, granted, like you said, I was on the bench. Um, it was a hard foul transition take foul by Markeith. I did not think that it warranted the response that it did. I think that it escalated to that level because of the reaction of, uh, Jokic and, you know, the, the kind of theatrics that ensued, um, the bench is starting to kind of try to clear the players coming together, trying to be separated. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of antics afterwards. And to be honest with you, I, I don't really feel like I am totally ready to comment on, on all of it uh, just because there are still some things that are kind of outstanding. Um, the most important one being, you know, Markeith's health. I don't really know exactly where that stands. I talked to him afterwards and he seemed like, he was good. He was able to walk off under his own power, which is, you know, obviously incredibly important. But first and foremost, I just want to make sure he's all right uh, moving forward. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, can you give us a little insight into what happens after the game? Because there's that viral photo going around of a collection of your teammates trying to get into a room somewhere. It's not entirely clear what's going on, but I know, you know, Jimmy was sort of yelling at the bench, let's take this out back. I mean, all that is pretty well documented. Uh, what's going on afterwards? What's the feeling in the locker room? Uh, how do things play out after the game? Yeah, so how the, the Denver arena is set up is actually our locker rooms, the home and away locker room are actually pretty close. Oftentimes, they're kind of on opposite sides and that there's no kind of like crossover. But Denver is one of the few cities where like when you're walking into games, you might be walking in right next to a Nuggets player. Um, it's just kind of like how the infrastructure of the arena is set up. So they actually, basically what happened was when we were leaving, they had us exit a different way just to make sure that there was no uh, interaction between any players or any teams. And uh, that's kind of the photo that you saw. They were preventing us um, or, you know, our, our players from interacting with them. And, uh, I mean, it was honestly, it was a pretty cool photo. Uh, it, it was a pretty cool moment to, to capture by that photographer. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of taken off since, but, uh, yeah, it was mostly just like a safety thing of making sure that, that nobody was going to interact. But like you said, I mean, the 29th is definitely going to be uh, an interesting game. It is an amazing photo. It's cinematic. It almost looks like a movie poster. I'm curious. I assume you're being blocked out by like Jimmy or Karan or one of those guys up front. I assume you were, maybe you were like huddled behind like sneak attack. I don't know what your guy's strategy was, but I figure you were there somewhere. Yeah, I was, I was in the mix uh, in some capacity. It was actually funny when I was, when we were kind of all like anticipating kind of what was going to happen next. I just remember being kind of left out in the cold of the uh, Clippers Rockets interaction. Uh, the, like the kind of like story of Chris Paul using like the secret tunnel. Uh, oh, yeah. And I was just like kind of thinking of like, wow, like I'm kind of now a part of this in a weird way. Um, and if there was like a way, you know, in, in ball arena, I think is what it's called. 
if there was a way for me to like find some sort of secret tunnel to the, mm. the nuggets locker room, uh, yeah. that that would be a, a pretty special little anecdote. Uh, but I don't think there is one in ball arena, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just another, um, example of, of the NBA being highly, highly competitive. I mean, that's really kind of what it comes down to is, uh, tensions were, were really high because it's two competitive teams kind of going at it. And, Obviously, there were frustrations uh, that just kind of escalated the, the entire event. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I like it. You never like someone to get hurt, so I obviously don't. I don't like the place that it escalated to. But a little chippiness. I mean, I you know, I just think it makes it fun to watch those games, and uh, that actually makes sense that you were. So it sounds like your task after the game was, "Hey, Duncan, this group's going to go try to barge through the front door, but why don't you look for a secret entrance into the locker room?" So that that makes sense why you weren't in the photo. That's what you were doing. Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just want to acknowledge that Davis is hundred percent being facetious and that there was no plan uh, to do so. I know how talking heads and uh, media folk uh, have a tendency to grab on to particular sound bites and extrapolate and create stories that do not exist. So I just needed to nip that in the butt. It's unfair. We don't know for certain whether it's true or not. Uh, last thing I'll say on this and then we can move on. I really, there are moments that you just really gain an appreciation for NBA Twitter. I know you're not really on Twitter, but th- last night was one of those. It's just, it's amazing all of the videos and memes and everything that immediately comes up, uh, specifically around the the Jokic brothers, because these guys are like notoriously, you know, they're, they're, they're at the games, they're in the stands, uh, they're fiery. And so you've now got this Jokic brother, Morris brother thing going on on Twitter, a little back and forth. I just think, it. look, it's kind of like the Jimmy TJ Warren thing that happened a season or two ago that led to all the anticipation of the next Pacers match. This is, it's the same thing. So yes, November 29th, star it, circle it. Here we go. Rally the dogs. Let's do it. Um, I'm going to transition to the the second takeaway of the week. And that is that Michigan football got absolutely robbed. Mm. Uh, Jim Harbaugh apparently spoke to Big Ten officials and they admitted to wrongdoing in the Michigan-Michigan State game. Uh, Everybody knew it when you watched it live. It was very (laughs) apparent that there was a mistake and they even had the opportunity to review it and they still didn't get it right. Um, And then to make everything worse, Michigan State goes on to absolutely blow it the following week uh, and lose to Purdue. And it's just like, you know, as a Michigan football fan, I have not really had the opportunity uh, to experience greatness, at least in my fandom. Granted, my, my fandom is, is somewhat recent, but this felt like a pivotal moment. Like if we had somehow gotten over that hump, the Michigan State hump, uh, then I think we really would have been on the great things and come to find out that we should have. We really should have. And it was robbed from us. And uh, I'll tell you what, Dave, I'm, I'm having a hard time sleeping at night these days because of it i understand i saw this too that yeah the there were some questionable calls i you know as you know i'm here in ann arbor so i've heard a lot about it uh it's a tough one but here's the thing michigan's what seventh in the country right now michigan state lost this past weekend michigan sort of can still can can sneak into the playoff they control their own destiny they win they beat ohio state and all of a sudden, they could find their way in that top four. So you're you're sounding a little doom and gloomy over there. It's a bad loss. Maybe you guys should have won. Maybe a couple calls could have gone your way. But the season is far from over, my friend. There's still a lot of hope here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. No, I mean, it's always going to boil down to that Ohio State game. It always does every single year. And uh, this year is going to be no different. So we'll see if uh, Jim and the boys can get it done. Uh, it's usually right around Thanksgiving. I don't know the exact exact date, but I'm certainly going to be tuned in uh, and, and eager to see if the uh, the old maize and blue can, can finally get over that, that final hurdle. Yep. I believe. Um, all right. Takeaway number three, I'm going to take, you broke another record, Dunk. Sound effect. Nah, we don't have a sound effect, but you did. And it's your favorite part of the podcast when we bring it up, but I have to bring it up. You broke your own record for most consecutive games in Heat franchise history with a three- now at 58. So I'm just going to acknowledge it. I know you hate talking about it, but it's another record, man. We like stacking records. It's never a bad thing. So congratulations. I mean, I, I appreciate it. Um, 
I actually didn't even really know that I, I had broken this one. Um, mostly because I've just kind of tuned out, tried to tune out a lot of the kind of noise and everything that's going on uh, with the start of this season. But this one, and I, and I know I always try to find a way to explain away my records. This one is particularly uh, uninspiring in my opinion. I mean, I take <laughs> eight to nine threes a game. So if I'm not making at least one, which lately uh, given the start of the season has, has been a little bit of a challenge uh, as we, as we've all seen, but Obviously, I've had, a, I've had a little bit of a slow start shooting the ball. Um, zero doubt in my mind, and I hope zero doubt in your mind as well, that uh, the tides will, will turn here very soon. But, Water uh, I mean, finds yeah, its level, guess, always. Yeah, I mean, I guess 58 games um, with a made three. But like I said, if you're going to take eight, nine, ten a game, uh, I took 17 uh, a couple of games ago. <laughs> so if you're going to take 17 a game or whatever it ends up being a game, double digits a game, yeah, you better make at least one a game for 58 straight. I mean, I guess it's like it happens though. People go over 10 that happens all the time. So, you know, let's, let's not wish away records, man. It's a record. Let's take it. Fair enough. Let's take I, it. I appreciate you acknowledging it. I'm going to take number four. It's it's pretty simple. Take uh, succession is a fantastic show and I'm all the way oh. in. And it's, it's great to hear that uh, you've actually joined the bandwagon a little bit late, but uh, nonetheless, I'm a huge fan of the show. Um, if you guys are not watching it, you should be, uh, very entertaining television. I think it's, they, they do a really interesting thing of making you actually like develop a care for incredibly insufferable people. Uh, and there's also kind of this, like, like it's a comedy. I, I, I feel like that like is missed often. Like it's, it's a drama, but it's also very much a comedy, uh, and it's just entertaining and, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I want to share it with all of you because I, I want you all to enjoy it as well. I am all in on succession. You convinced me to give it a try as did Tommy. And it is, yeah, it's, it's really good. I just finished season two, so I'm a little behind. We don't want to spoil anything, but yeah, great show. Great show. If, if you have HBO max and you're looking for a new show. I, I strongly recommend six. I strongly if you don't have succession. HBO Max, uh, feel free to reach out to Davis. Uh, he can provide mm. his HBO Max account uh, and uh, let you in on, like we said, a great show, Succession. Davis, what do you got? Number five. I'm such an adult. It's ridiculous. I have my own HBO Max, not using my mother and father's login for Netflix. No, 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 no. Bought it myself. Just like I bought myself League Pass, which we've touched on in this podcast, Duncan. I actually had uh, a really interesting moment. This is a, probably five or six months ago now. Um, I was I wanted to watch something on HBO. I probably rewatch Entourage. I mean, that's what I spend majority of my time on HBO uh, Max doing. And I didn't have an HBO Max login, and I, I was using other people's, uh, you know, friends of friends. Like it, it had gone to like kind of like a dark place, and for whatever reason, like I just had it saved in my computer. It wasn't like I was trying to be cheap or whatever. And I remember texting one of my one of my friends, uh, Harry Rafferty, and being like, "Hey, man, like, do you have that HBO login? <laughs> you know, I could really use it, mind you." Like. <laughs> I don't, I, I use like my friend's Netflix. I, you know, all these other accounts, I, I don't really have my own. And that's like kind of You're embarrassing to admit, but like, it's mostly just out of like convenience. Like I've had them saved in my computer. So I just kind of use it. Uh, anyways, he really called me. This is a turning point in my life. Actually. He really like called me on my shit. He, he responded to my text with a, with a FaceTime. And he said, <laughs> you know what, Duncan, it's time for you to start being a contributing member of this economy <laughs> and society and purchase your own accounts. Like you, you can very much afford it. Uh, there's no more excuses. You are in no position to be texting others for logins, just get an account. And since that moment, uh, I purchased a Netflix account. I've got an HBO max account. I got a YouTube TV account. I've done all of wow. these things. Uh, and, and I got to say, I, I feel like you said, I, I feel much more of an adult because of it. You know, I'm really, really happy to hear that. You're, you're really coming into your own as an adult. It sounds a little bit like you've gone overboard though. Netflix, YouTube TV, HBO Max. Like did you, you just need them all now? It's like zero I'm, to a hundred. I'm making up for lost time is really what it is. You know, all those years, the college years, you know, where I would just kind of latch on wherever I could. I, I'm, mm. I'm paying it, paying it forward in some respects. Well, 
I accept it. I actually, I fully support it. It's beautiful. All right, Dunk, I will take the fifth and final takeaway. And it's a quick one. It's an observation I made this week that's, that's sticking with me. The people at the gym who come over and try to correct someone else's form are the worst type of people in the world. I don't care if it's coming from a good place. It's not, it's not ever your place to come over and try to improve someone's lifting technique because it's never in a way that's selfless. It's always, look, I know how to lift correctly and let me show you that I know how to lift correctly. This did not happen directly to me, but it happened next to me. And I was listening to this guy try to explain to another guy how to properly do a lat pull down. And I was just like, dude, go back to your treadmill and let this guy work out in peace. No one wants this right now. Well, maybe he's actually looking out for his best interest. Maybe before in his life, he's tweaked a muscle or had an injury as it pertains to not doing a lap pull down the right way. And he wants to prevent somebody else from going through that same discomfort. I, I think the fact that you're not able to look at it from a selfless standpoint speaks more to who you are as a person and, and less about who that person is. I, I think that person, I, I think in general, we should be giving these people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he is just trying to, to help. You know, I, I don't understand why you have to have this pessimistic negative approach. Look, man, I know over there for you, it's all sunshine and rainbows all the time. But what I saw was a guy in a spaghetti strap tank top trying to show off his lats to another guy and correct his lifting form when it wasn't that bad in the first place. All right. And I don't want to see that in the weight room. It's just, it's not the right place. All right. If you're doing it with the right intentions, I think that'll come across. These were not with the right intentions. It's valid. Uh, I mean, I guess now that you paint the full, pi the full picture, I, I understand a little bit more uh, context and, and understand where you're coming from. All right, let's get to the Reddit question of the week. Let's keep this train rolling. What do you got? Yeah, so this is actually from Twitter. Comes from our guy, Andre. And he asked, Duncan, what is your most memorable post-game interview? Is that for like one that I participated in or can it be one that I observed? I, I would rather it be one you participated in. This mm. this guy was referencing the Cole Anthony, most recent Cole Anthony post-game interview. I mean, this guy notoriously already in two years gives the best post-game interviews in the NBA right now. Uh, but that that was is what he was referencing. So I think it was one of your own. Do you have any post-game interviews like that where you you thought you really brought it? Well, I would say if, it, if I weren't to answer this through my an interview of mine, one of my more memorable ones was another Cole Anthony interview. The one where he shouts out Mo. Uh, I absolutely <laughs> loved that interview when he's like, this guy, Mo, my front office, we just got him. I'm like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Because I love him. He's my guy. <laughs> and like hearing him talk about Mo in that way, uh, I really, that was a memorable one for me. Uh, in terms of my own memorable post-game interviews, I will say, so we have like a little winner circle thing when we win at home in Miami. Um, my guy, Jason Jackson, AKA Jax, will grab, uh, or this was last year, I guess he no longer does this, but he'll he'll grab the kind of performer of the night, whatever you want to call it, and that person will speak to the entire arena. I would say my first interview with him uh, was a special moment. Um, yeah, it was just one that kind of stuck out to me. It was the, you know, one of the first home games where I played really well and I got acknowledged in front of everybody. And it's just kind of something that, that I remember. Uh, was a cool moment for me. Jason Jackson is a man, you know, as Miami legend through and through. So to sit down and, uh, or stand up, I should say, and, and chop it up with him. And, uh, you know, it's also on television, but also more so just in front of the, the fans and a live audience. It's a cool moment. Did you give cliche interview questions or did you really bring it? Probably. No, I probably just, you know, kept it right down the middle. Uh, that, that tends to be kind of the lane that I travel in every now and then I'll mix it up a little bit more. Um, but yeah, more than, more likely than not, pretty cliche. It's still one of the things, the biggest things that I need you to work on this year is bringing it in post-game interviews. I want you to rival Cole Anthony in just authentic, genuine emotion post-game. I mean, he certainly brings it uh, in that regard. I think every interview that, that guy has is, is pretty much straight viral. Um, but once again, I mean, that's, that's kind of who he is, and, and I appreciate and respect that. That's not necessarily... Uh, 
you know, who I am. So it's not authentic to me. You know what I mean, Dave? It's all about being true to yourself. I feel like that's a message that applies to far more things than just post-game interviews. I'll let it slide. Fine. Fair enough. All right, Dave, let's transition to our long shot feature. We got a great one here. Purdue quarterback, Aiden O'Connell. He's a fifth-year senior, joined the team as a walk-on, as a freshman. Uh, Didn't really get much time at all uh, on his first four years. Started a a little bit in year four. Now he's in year five. Uh, He was sharing the, the starting job earlier on in the year. But now, since he's taken over, he has upsets over Michigan State and Iowa, uh, and he's got the Purdue Boilermakers rolling. Uh, so shout out to Aiden O'Connell for that. Yep, two upsets over top five teams, one of which might really help Michigan. Keep an eye on the blue. They might be coming. But yeah, shout out to Aiden. Sorry, not to make this about Michigan. Yeah, uh, this is absolutely about Aiden and not about Uh, Davis Reed. Anyways, uh, the interview is about TJ McConnell, and it's a fantastic one. I think you guys will really enjoy it. TJ is, simply put, just the man. Uh, Great conversation uh, with a great person, so I think you guys will really enjoy it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in to the Long Shot Podcast. We are joined by one of my favorite players in the league. And I'm not just saying that. I don't say that for every intro. Uh, I mean that wholeheartedly. Uh, A fan favorite of many as well. TJ McConnell, welcome to the Long Shot. Well, let me just start off by saying thank you for having me. And you're one of my favorites as well. I'm not just saying that to reciprocate. You are one of my favorites as well. Trust me. That uh, that felt like it was a little bit in the moment that you felt obligated to uh, to return that compliment. I'll take it for what it is. Uh, but no, I, I, I mean that wholeheartedly. I've been a fan of your game for, for quite some time. Uh, as an undrafted player myself, I feel like you've kind of really been carrying the baton for us undrafted folk. Uh, and, and I think you kind of embody the undrafted persona as well as anybody. And I, I'm just curious, I, I just want to get get right down to the root of it all. Where do you think that the the grit, the the fire, the competitive spirit, like is that just harvested from, you know, the being growing up in Pittsburgh? Is it is it transferring small college to high major? Like what what is it? Son of a coach, you know, you, you got a um, you got a long lineage of examples. Yeah. I mean, I think you you can take bits and pieces from everything that you just said, but like like, let's be honest. Like, I'm not, I'm not athletic. I'm not tall. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I don't shoot the ball like you. Um, so, like, what can I do that, like, I can control and, like, not a ton of people do is just play my ass off. Like, play incre- incredibly hard and um, – just make life miserable for people I'm playing against and push the pace on offense and be as disruptive as I can on defense. I feel like that's something that I can totally control that really doesn't, I guess you could call it a skill, but um, it's something that I kind of tip my hat to and I just get so locked into the game. And I guess, like I said, it just take bits and pieces from everything, but also I'm, I haven't been, I wasn't blessed with, uh, long arms and the ability to jump out the gym or a pretty jump shot like yourself. Uh, you keep mixing in the compliments towards me. I'm going to have to nip that uh, right here. So, so moving forward, please, uh, can we refrain from doing that? But you say, I, I firmly believe that, that playing hard is a skill uh, and, and you do it masterfully. But I'm curious, like when people say like, oh, you know, he's such a great shooter. He talks about myself and that's not me patting myself on the back, but when they kind of put me in that box, there are, it's a very much a compliment and and I've loved hearing it, but there are also times where it's like, 
it's kind of exactly that where people are just want to kind of put you in this this corner. I feel like when people say, "Oh, well, TJ just plays hard," like that's all he is. I personally feel like that is severely underselling what you bring to the table. Like you have an incredible way to manipulate the game, your basketball IQ, the way you create opportunities for others, uh, the way you kind of masterfully navigate like time and situation throughout end of quarters, like all those sorts of things. Do you feel like it's kind of uh, – not like disrespectful, but it's not really giving you the credit you deserve to just be like, oh, well, TJ just plays hard as shit. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it so much that it's like I've gotten numb to it. Um, I feel like the fact of the matter is like I, you, you pretty much know it. Like there's stuff that I do that, you know, people say I just play hard, but it doesn't show up on a stat sheet. So I feel like that's why people always say it. And I'm and I'm cool with it. If people want to think I only play hard and then just kind of, you know, overlook me, that's cool. I, I feel like they it they learn pretty quick that I just do more than play hard. And um, you know, I appreciate you saying that, but at the same time, it doesn't bother me to that people, you know, kind of think that I just play hard. It's but I've heard it so much. So um I kind of just goes in one ear and out the other. TJ, I uh, got the opportunity to sit courtside for the first time a couple weeks ago, and this is not me bragging. I was at a game in Brooklyn. Tommy and JJ had an extra ticket. They let me sneak in. That's all it was. Uh, but it was amazing to me. It was the first time I'd watched a game that close. It was amazing to me how little space there was. Like That was my biggest takeaway. In half-court sets, there is no space at all. You got a bunch of seven-foot guys with seven-foot wingspans taking up the entire three-point line and in. I can't ask Duncan this question because he doesn't go inside the three-point line, but as someone who makes a living off like penetration in some mid-range game, what is it like a guy your size trying to find space in an NBA half-court set? It's just, it, it was baffling to me how long these guys are and how much space they take up. Yeah, I mean, and I feel like Duncan can attest to this. Um, you know, he does go inside the three-point line sometimes. But um, the margin for error when you when you get inside the three point line um, and your head's not on a swivel, it's it's so it's so small. You know, one mistake and there's people are covering ground. Like before you know it, there's four or five guys surrounding you, and you kind of panic. So when I'm in there, I kind of just like to get to my spots. I really don't try to do too much while I'm in there. You know, I just read what the defense is doing. But getting to my spots and getting to my mid-range, um, I've kind of tried to perfect throughout my career. And I'm sorry you had to see the performance that I put on in Brooklyn at that game. I apologize uh, for, for that. Um, you, you talk about getting to your spots and any team that prepares for a TJ McConnell led group knows that you have your kind of moves that you get to my favorite being that kind of like midi after the dribble through kind of like pull up which you think over and over like oh you know we we should be able to like block that or something he's you know six feet whatever uh we have like a six three six four guard on him like he shouldn't be able to get that off but you do every single time how like from a skill development standpoint how have you kind of like learned how to find those spots, whether it be in the off season, whether it be throughout the season, whether it be with working with a coaching staff, watching film, how have you kind of learned like, okay, these are the areas in which I can be effective? Because I imagine it's very different than obviously how you played in high school, but also how you played in college as well. Yeah. I feel like it's a feel thing. Like what kind of screens am I going to be using? Like like you've played against me, I use deep corner pick and rolls and I get to the middle. Um, I use step ups. And then that's when I take that one dribble on the, on the baseline and, and kind of get that uh, jump shot up there. But like, I feel like for the most part, and I, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I feel like I'm able to get to those shots because people don't think I'm going to shoot them. You know, when I, when I come off a deep corner pick and roll, I'm looking for someone to pass it to. But then I know that everyone's kind of going back out to their man. That's when I kind of surprise people and 
look right up at the basket and jump really quick and make those jump shots. It's kind of just watching film, the way teams play me, um, and the flow of the game, you know, whether I'm getting step-ups or deep corner pick and rolls more. Yeah, you, you talk about the way teams play you. One thing that's always really impressed me is that, you know, and, and this isn't throwing shade, but a lot of teams will go under your ball screens, right? And and whether it twists, you know, you'll you'll have the big twist it or flip it so you can get in the paint. But one thing that I've noticed you do really, really well is you'll actually outrun an under. So someone will go under your screen and you'll still find a way to get in the paint. Is once again, is that is that also just kind of like learning how to play and pick and roll? Because so much of the NBA is like once a team figures out what you want to do, you know, like for example, for me, I had I had to adjust like what's your adjustment to the adjustment. Um, and as a pick and roll player, like you need to get in the paint and create for others. So defensively, it's like, all right, we'll keep them out of the paint by going under, but you still find a way repeatedly over and over to to find your way into the paint. Yeah. And I mean, I I've, I've worked on my three and like, let's be honest, like me, when they go under me pulling up with what 15, 14 on the clock, that's not the best shot we can get. So as you know, like when you go under on someone, it's like kind of hard, like to like feel where they're going, unless they kind of just like, they're not really attacking downhill, but if you go under on someone and then the ball handler, goes just as hard downhill when you're going under it's really hard to get back in front so i i saw someone do that i i I forget who it was and i kind of tried to implement that into my game because i'm i'm pretty quick and and when guys go under i feel like they kind of just expect me to kind of just get off the ball and go but i mean i'm i don't want to like kill a possession but you know when they go under i try to beat them to the basket make one guy help that's all it takes is one guy rotating over and then just creating a problem and, and going from there. By the way, I feel like this is a good time to acknowledge that you're shooting 40, 40% from three this year. Um, so for all you people going on their ball screens, you might want to reconsider. I was going to say, Dunk, he's, he's also taking two times the amount of his career average. He's up to over one a game, like one and a half a game. So yeah, the under screen might be over. So you shoot, so uh, basically you shoot more threes than... I take in a game in one quarter is, is, is basically is basically what's being said. Yeah, but that's all I do. You know what I mean? Like it's like that. That's not even like a, a fair comparison. Like you're the amount of paint touches you get in you know one shift, like one six eight minute shift, is as many as I might get in a, a two or three game span. But like that's not all. Like just because like you think that's all you do, like do you know how much attention you give and it helps your teammates. It's ridiculous. Not to mention, not to mention, let's, let's say this, because I've seen it over and over and over. People try to go at you on, on defense. It, it's happened to me. It's, it's, it's the white guy thing. I think you get tested every, every time in a game. Um, and you answer the bell every time. I feel like your defense is very, very, very underrated. Wow. We uh, we're gonna have to clip that little part out. Yeah, and, I was gonna just say. post that everywhere uh, that we have a a uh, first team all defense candidate out here saying that that I can really defend. I'm uh, you actually bring up a really interesting point of being called out. I'm curious as to when in your career did that start to shift? Like when did you start to get some respect on on the defensive end of like all right? Because I imagine early on they were calling out the the small undrafted guard uh, quite a bit. And then, like, was there a noticeable shift? Yeah, well, I mean, my first game of my career, Isaiah Thomas gave me 30. And <laughs> it was, like, one of the most, like, it, it was insane. Like, Brad Stevens, like, every time down, like, again, 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 same play. And he scored on it, like, five straight times. And I'm like, am I really good enough to play in the NBA, like, after that game? And then, I don't know, one of my coaches was like, why don't you try, like, picking up full court? And he's like, no one does it. And I was, and he's like, let's get you in great shape, world-class shape and pick up full court and just be a pest throughout the entire possession. And I feel like once I locked in and honed in on that, um, you know, people still try to go at me, but uh, I feel like I've gained some respect as a defender. I mean, uh, 
a triple double with steals will do that as well. That <laughs> was uh, that was a historic night. I actually I was tuning into that game live on League Pass at halftime. Uh, I, I turned it on because I think you had what you have like seven steals at half or eight. What my coach came up to me, I was like, "Do you know what you're doing?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "You have nine steals at halftime." I was like, "There's no way that that's true." <laughs> that no was way. unbelievable. That that's in, I can't even fathom what that would feel like. Like it, when I get like two or th- two two steals or like five deflections in a game, I literally feel like I'm Scottie Pippen out there. You know what I mean? And, and you're out here just getting nine steals and a half, uh, absolutely electrifying stuff. What do you What do you remember from like that night in particular? Um, it was just one of those games um, where I don't know. I was in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, kind of just all over the place, getting my hands on everything and. Um, you know, we were losing for most, most, uh, of that game. And I was just trying to like, will us back and, and, and trying to get a win. And, you know, when my coach came up to me at halftime, I was like, I thought he was like joking, but cause I, I knew I had a good amount of steals, but it felt like four or five. So when he said nine, it was, I don't know. It was incredible. I just, I'm just glad we won though. So you're not the kind of guy that counts his own stats during a game. I mean, I feel like as a player, you're lying if you say you don't look up at the stat line on the scoreboard. Like, every player does it. I promise you. Um, (laughs) But, like, when he said the nine steals, like, I had to, like, look up there a few times throughout the game. Yeah, I guess steals isn't on the the Jumbotron, typically. So, I buy that. I buy that. All right. What it, it is, you just got to look for it a little bit harder. You know, like the points, <laughs> rebounds, and assists are like really out there in plain sight. And the steals, you just got to uh, look a little bit harder. I want to ask about your decision to transfer uh, to Arizona from Duquesne. Uh, you were the hometown hero, you know, stayed, stayed local for college, but then made the decision to, uh, go play for Sean Miller at Arizona. I obviously transferred, uh, as well, making a jump up, uh, in levels. And I'm curious for you what that transition was like. In all honesty, you did it, uh, far superior than, than what I did. You went and started right away. It was incredibly impactful and, uh, led one of the best teams in the country to multiple tournament runs. But what do you kind of remember about that decision? decision early on of like wanting to make the jump yeah I was super nervous um you know I was sitting there the the our school actually hosted the NCAA tournament that year um you know at the Pittsburgh Penguins arena so I went down with my dad and was sitting there and just saw a bunch of teams play and it like this light went off in my head and this is not a shot at Duquesne I, I enjoyed my time there um we just weren't really uh, t- tournament ready, you know, when I was there. So I kind of just said, I want to take a chance and, and, and transfer. And, you know, these schools and coaches kept calling and, um, you know, I just went on the visit to Arizona and me and coach Miller connected right away. The guys connected with me. Um, you know, it was an easy decision and the style of play was a big thing. He wanted to get out and go and run. And, and that's the way I like to play. But I feel like, you know, like we only get one shot at this and um, to go play on the national stage at Arizona, um, it was an opportunity I just couldn't pass up. So a couple couple questions to follow up on that. Were you did you kind of know what schools would would kind of be an option if you did transfer? And then also was the decision based in I just want to like compete in the NCAA tournament or was it like I want to set myself up to one day play in the NBA or you know get drafted like what kind of I imagine there's probably more to it than just one thing but kind of what was that kind of decision process uh looking like at that point yeah I mean for me it was to want to go play on the biggest stage and compete for a national championship and you know I was actually surprised, you know, I saw a Tucson, Arizona area code come up on my phone and, you know, I had never talked to Sean Miller up to that point. So when he called, I was like super surprised and, 
you know, like we said, I, he talked to me for like an hour and we, we connected over the phone and wanted me to come out for a visit. But like, I'm just being honest. Like when I went to Arizona, I was playing with the Stanley Johnsons of the world, Aaron Gordon's, Nick Johnson's, um, Brandon Ashley, Caleb Tarzuski, the list goes on. And I never thought to myself, like, man, I'm an NBA player. Like I was just trying to be the best point guard I could on those teams and, and help us try to win a national championship. And it never really dawned on me that I had a chance to play in the NBA until I made the Sixers. So, and, and, and I'm, and I'm not lying. I, 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 ne- I never thought about it. I thought when my last game, like I was like, I'm going overseas. Like it is what it is. So after that last game, cause I know that that pre-draft process, particularly as somebody who's like, at best second round more likely undrafted because that that's kind of the boat that i was in it can be you know nerve-wracking in in many ways just the uncertainty of like you know i I could be someplace over here in a great situation or i could be in latvia like who like literally who knows the the possibilities are endless what was like that process for you was there like any moment where you started to kind of gain some confidence, whether it be in pre-draft workouts, I don't know if you were invited to the combine, were you? I was the last, crazy story. I was the last invite and it was like, they were like, pay your way. And if someone drops out, you can, you can come in. And I was in Chicago, not knowing if anyone, and then they called my agent and they were like, someone dropped out. So I was, I just, I got in at the very last minute. Wow. So like little moments like that, I got to imagine we're like big confidence builders of, all right, this is, this seems a whole lot more realistic that I could actually do this. Yeah. I mean, I, and I played, I played decent in the, uh, in the combine. That was the first year they did five on five and, you know, just a funny story. Like they were bringing me in for like my hand measurements and like, and like wingspan. And I'm like, can we just skip this part, man? Like, can we just go to the five on five? Cause like, I've got a negative wingspan. Like my hands are like the size of a newborn baby's. Like we, can we just move on and go to the, to the competing stuff? Like that's, what's going to help me here. And, um, you know, an, a humbling moment for sure to see the guy look at me after measuring my hands and, the and my wingspan, but, um, you know, and then going after the combine straight into 18 workouts, um, you know, for obviously eight, 18 different teams. And I just didn't know what to expect. Um, didn't hear too, too much, but had a good workout with Philly. And, you know, they were the first one to call after draft night. And it was hard because I don't know if this happened to you, but um, I think like five or six teams wanted to draft me and then send me right overseas. And my agent was like, that's probably not a route you want to do if you want to try to make the NBA. Cause you know, they kind of, send those guys over there and then they have to come back and restart. And it was hard because you want to hear your name called, but at the same time you make the decision to kind of bet on yourself and, and make it through summer league and training camp and go that route. You know, we're all about the underdog story here, TJ, the fact that you've made it to the NBA with hands, the size of a newborn baby is (laughs) one of the biggest underdog stories. I think we've covered, this is episode 41 and we've covered a lot of them. Um, I'm curious for both you guys, what do those pre-draft workouts look like? Like TJ, you're saying you just wanted to get to the five on five. How much is like individual skill work, spot shooting? Like, is there a lot of, are you doing everything? Does it vary on team? Do you know what's, what, when you're going into a workout, do you know what to expect? It definitely varies on team, but you don't know what to expect. I think for the most part, obviously like standstill shooting, and in a bunch of uh, different drills, um, depending on the team you're with, but there's teams that do a conditioning test and, um, it's, it's incredibly hard. And you, after it's after a full workout and then you do the conditioning test and you're trying to push yourself as hard as you can. Um, I'd say for the most part though, most teams pretty generally do spot shooting and, and a bunch of different drills, but not all of them do that test. TJ, I'm, I'm curious if you found in the pre-draft workouts, if it was frustrating for you that you would get matched up with guys that were going to be first-round picks or second-round picks and maybe went on to get drafted, and then you line up with them in that workout setting, 
and get the best of them, play well, uh, you know, defend your team wins, you play well, all that sort of stuff. But then like you're kind of faced with this reality of like, all right, well, that matters, but it also doesn't really matter because even if I outplay you in this setting right here, it doesn't mean that I'm going to get called over you on, on draft night. Cause that's something that I kind of like had to deal with in that like I felt like I would go into a workout and play really well and then all of a sudden all these guys that I would see in workouts and not saying that they like weren't worthy of it but like they would get drafted because maybe they they did have you know a crazy wingspan or or had all this potential that you know myself as a 24 year old rookie uh didn't exactly have like are there specific moments or memories and you don't have to like maybe call anybody out but like of those types of experiences yeah, I mean, I you definitely feel like they're bringing – I mean, I felt like for the most part when I was matched up against those guys, I was kind of like a filler, a guy that they knew I was going to play hard. And and this isn't a shot. It's just the reality. Like, they're bringing who, – who they want to see is who they want to see. Like, whether you play well or not, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. I mean, and that's okay. That's just the reality of it, though. Um, you could have your best workout and you'll impress people and they'll bring you in for like training camp and all that stuff. But um, if you're not on the, their radar for, for the draft boards, I don't think it matters much how, how well you play unless you completely destroy the workout. Yeah. I, I definitely uh, experienced that as well. You make a great point of like, at that point, it's more so they're just trying to evaluate the guys that they already like uh, and, and nothing's really moving the needle one way or another. I want to talk early uh, process Sixers because you were a, a pivotal part of the process, the genesis of the process. Uh, you you really got your, your start, obviously, in Philly. Now, those teams, they, you know, weren't, they were competitive, but they weren't exactly, you know, running through the Eastern Conference. For you, I imagine it was a great opportunity to like to gain some footing, gain some experience, be able to play through some mistakes. But was it kind of, you know, somebody who's a consummate winner who's won your entire life, you didn't necessarily get to see your impact turn into materialize into wins. I imagine that that's kind of a bittersweet season and that it's incredible because you're learning so much, but you're also not really able to move the needle, which is obviously an incredibly tall task to ask of an undrafted rookie uh, in terms of actually like getting wins. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've said this a bunch, um, as you know, like when you play in the NBA and play valuable minutes and play a lot of them, it's all about opportunity and timing. And I feel like if the process wasn't going on and the tanking and stuff like that, I'm not sure I would be in the NBA. Um, you know, I kind of got lucky in the fact that they were trying to find guys on cheap contracts and, and, and do a bunch of stuff. And I, I just found my role there and, and, and made the team. And, um, and like you said, got valuable minutes, even though we weren't winning, it was, it was tough, but you knew, um, we just weren't good enough to win those games. We didn't have the talent um, to win those games. We played hard, but that only gets you so far. Um, but in the back of my mind, I was saying to myself, you know, I'm getting valuable, valuable experience right now that not a lot of probably 99% of undrafted rookies would ever get. At what point in your career, and maybe it's it's not yet, but – I got to imagine now after signing the deal that you did this summer, there's a certain level of comfortability that comes with like, okay, I've not that I've arrived, but more so like I've established myself uh, as a, a pro that you can really count on. At what point in your career did that, did you really start to feel that instead of like, you know, I, I know that feeling early on those first two years of like constantly always looking over your shoulder of like, all right, Am I safe? Am I going to walk into the facility and get waved? Is this going to happen? You know, this, that, or whatever. And and I and I imagine you know what makes you great is that you're not comfortable, but that you at least got to the point where you feel established. Yeah, um, this is going to sound like I'm lying, but 
I always like to play like my back's up against the wall because it makes me lock in and, and play harder. And I've always told myself if I'm not grinding and playing that way, like my back's up against the wall or, or like this is my last game, I, I've, said, I've said to myself, like, it's time for you to retire when you don't have that mindset anymore. Like, I know I signed the deal that I did and I've always, I mean, I've, I've, been, I've played in the NBA for seven years, but I've never truly felt established. I've always weirdly liked the feeling of like looking over your shoulder and, and going out there like there's something to prove. Um, I just always like playing that way. Dunk, do you? Do you feel that way? Because, I mean, now this is year one of no, you coming no, off the he contract. Doesn't. He doesn't feel that way. No, I mean, I, I think, TJ, I think you hit it on the head in terms of, like, there's something about that performance anxiety that brings out the best uh, of people. And and I've actually, in a different way, but, like, I, I'm also not a super – crazy athlete i don't play above the rim i don't have this ability to like impact the the game in all these different ways necessarily so like i i also really share that sentiment of like if i'm not every single game locked in 100 percent all out then like i'm kind of losing my superpower in in some respects because that's kind of my always being on top of it always being prepared uh ready for every opportunity is kind of I've always felt like what separates me. And I imagine that for you, like there are mistakes that other guys can afford to make that in, in all honesty, you and I like can't afford to make it. And you, and you build a little bit of equity to the point where like, all right, if you mess up a de defensive assignment and you're one or two, you might get yanked. And now you have a little bit more leeway to like kind of play through those moments. Um, but I, I, I share the, the sentiment in that like, there is something about that, like that anxiety that like is always over you. And it, it sounds like it's a negative term, like having that anxiety, but it also is like what makes you feel alive. I know that sounds kind of like corny, but it's like, that's what you want night in and night out. I feel. No, I, I agree. It, it locks me in and it takes me to a different level. Like when I'm anxious, every single game, like every single game. And it's like, it, to me, like when I don't feel that, there's not going to be, like you said, there's not going to be any joy in playing. Like the the feeling of going out there and competing and and having that anxiety. Like when that ball goes up, there's nothing like like locking in and getting ready to go. And you know, to like to your point, like like the established part. Like when I signed the contract, I there was a sense of relief because I've all, I always have my family in the back of my mind, my wife and my son. And I'm like, okay, you know, they're, they're good. So now it's time to, th that relief is gone. Like, like that's over with, but like the, the anxiety that you talk about, it's a different anxiety when you, when you sign something like that or what you signed, you want to show that you're, you're worth it. And, and it takes that, uh, that anxiety that you talk about to a, to another level. I thought that it was going to be like, okay, I got this four year deal. And it was like, no, no, that anxiety just went to another level and it makes you want to lock in even more. I was going to say, yeah, I've certainly felt that it ramps up and something I've navigated or tried to learn how to navigate this year is that's a, it's a newfound pressure and people can say like oh you know like just go out and play just go out and do this but like you know the part of who i am is like now that once you ink that it's like all right well i want to go out and like earn it every single fucking night i don't i don't want to i don't want to just like chill and be like i'm good now uh I can't relate to the sentiment of, of having a wife or, or a son um but i do i do have to imagine you know once you do put pen to paper on that and that's got to be a surreal moment of like, all right, my, my family, uh, my, my wife, my kids, like everybody is, is now taken care of because I can put a ball in a hoop or prevent somebody from putting a ball in a hoop. I mean, that's, that's got to be something that maybe you probably never even imagined would be possible. I know I, I, I know I never did. No, I mean, I completely agree with you. I never, I never thought I'd be in the NBA, let, let alone signing a four-year deal worth 
the amount that I did. And I'm, and I'm forever grateful, but my wife is just like, she's a superhero. She, she takes care of our son by herself for the most part. Um, you know, they don't, people don't see that, you know, we're on the road a ton. We're at practice. We're never really home. Um, so the significant others, um, they're superheroes and, and she's been absolutely amazing. Just holding down the fort, you know, while I'm gone. Um, I can't thank her enough. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to, uh, to your wife. I'm sorry. I don't know her name. Um, Valerie, Valerie, shout out to Valerie. Uh, I have, I have another question as it pertains to big contracts and playing in the NBA. And I'm curious because one of, one of my favorite things, you know, whenever we interact, I, I love the fact that like, you're just, just a regular guy. And then that's not to say that other NBA players aren't, but like we very much exist in this, I kind of call it like a fantasy world of like crazy amounts of, of money and this luxurious travel and all these crazy opportunities and experiences. How do you kind of like stay grounded and just kind of stay true to the Pittsburgh kid that, that grew up loving basketball? Like what helps you kind of step out of this fantasy land of the NBA and just kind of stay true to, to who you are? Um, I feel like you can um, kind of say the same thing where I try not to forget where I came from and, you know, everyone who was there for me before I played in the NBA and, and stuff like that. Like I hate shopping. I, I, I live in sweats. Like I, I don't like fashion. Like the only thing I really spend money on is wine. Um, and you can thank JJ for that, but uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, man. It's just, going out every day and, and like, it takes so much energy to be a bad person. Like I just try to live my day and, and, and be as good to people as I can, you know, treat them well. Um, and not let this get too serious and, and, and let it go to my head. I don't think I'd ever let that happen. You're clearly a good person for saying that. Cause I actually sometimes think it takes a lot of energy to be a good person. Um, so the fact that you feel the opposite says a lot about who you are. Uh, I know that you're a big wine guy just from, uh, just from your relationship with JJ. If you could have a glass of wine with anyone in the NBA right now, competitor or teammate, you could just sit down and have a glass of wine with them. Who are you? Who are you choosing? Greg Popovich. Ooh. Great answer. It's a good answer. Yeah. Can't argue that. He is, I don't, I don't know a wine god if you will um in <laughs> in more than just nba circles um he, you know i've talked to him throughout the years he's a great guy but his love for wine is like something that i hope to be like um you know when i'm done playing he, he said something to me when we were in the bubble and it was insane because uh, he's probably one of the best coaches ever and he goes, you know, this is a job. My real passion is food and wine. And you just kind of take a step back and you're like, but you're like the greatest coach of all time. So like, <laughs> you're not taking this too seriously. And, and it's just like, it's, it's crazy, man. When, when you hear stuff like that, it's, uh, I, I was super um, humbled and, 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 and loved hearing it from a guy like that. Have you gotten any uh, good pop stories from Doug? McDermott, I know he's, I'm sure he's been uh, popping open some bottles of wine with Pop since he's been down there. So I'm curious if you've heard anything. I haven't, I haven't heard too many stories, but you know, we played them and Dougie wasn't there, but he said the pop, the pop dinners when, when there's wine flow and at these great restaurants there, he said they're remarkable. So I told Pop, I was like, can I get an invite to one of these dinners? You know, I need to be there. You know, I'll sit at the coach's table, just pick your brain a little bit. Um, you know, we got a good laugh out of it. Uh, speaking of, uh, being at the coach's table, is that something that, that could be in your future? I mean, I feel like you probably get put in that box all the time. Like, oh, he's a future coach plays like a future coach, all that sort of stuff. Is it something you've thought about or want to pursue? Yeah, I've definitely thought about it. Um, you know, as you know, you know, we travel a ton as players and, and spend a lot of time from our family. Um, I'm just not, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I'll cross that bridge, you know, when I have to, 
Um, if the right opportunity presents itself, you know, me and my wife have talked about, you know, doing something like that, but if it's not the right opportunity, I, I don't know if I'm going to do it. Speaking of which, is it true that in Philly, Brian Colangelo thought that you were a coach, that you were an assistant? <laughs> All right. It, it's, it's actually, it's actually a funny story. Um, you know, after my rookie year, you know, I was kind of on cloud nine. I was back home with my boys and, um, in Pittsburgh, you know, it's, you drink beer. That's what it is. And, um, I went home and, you know, me and the boys, we were drinking beers a lot. And as you do. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I came back, this is before, this is pre wine, pre wine love. I don't, uh, I don't mess with the beer anymore, but, um, I came back probably a, a little huskier than I should have been. And we were playing pickup one day and Brian Colangelo, mind you, this is his first year in the, uh, with, with the Sixers. And so uh, I made a good impression naturally, you know, him walking in and he was like, why is an assistant coach, you know, playing pickup right now? And they were like, that's TJ McConnell. And uh <laughs> I, when I heard that story, I almost fell over laughing. Um, but it's just like it, one of those, like, what the hell, man? Like, it's just, it's just like my luck, but you know, self-inflicted as well. What's the, uh, what's the Pittsburgh native beer of choice? Iron city. Love it. You've never heard of it. Have you? I've never heard of it, but it's just so fitting. It's beautiful. I'm going to get, I'm going to get you a case. Don't worry. Uh, I can't wait to uh, to crush some Iron City with you in the future. TJ, thank you for coming on. Uh, you're the man. I, I appreciate your your presence and uh, taking the time on your road trip to uh, to talk to us. No, I appreciate you guys, man, and uh, look forward to seeing you down the road, my guy. <laughs>